When I go into a bank, I get rattled. The clerks rattle me. The wickets rattle me. The sight of money rattles me. Everything rattles me. The moment I cross the threshold of a bank and I attempt to transact business there, I become an irresponsible idiot. I knew this beforehand, but my salary had been raised to $50 a month, and I felt that the bank was the only place for it. So I shambled in and looked timidly round at the clerks. I had an idea that a person about to open an account must need consult the manager. I went up to a wicket-marked accountant. The accountant was a tall, cool devil. The very sight of him rattled me. My voice was sepulchral. Can I see the manager, I said, and added solemnly, alone. I don't know why, I said alone. Certainly, said the accountant, and fetched him. The manager was a grave, calm man. I held my fifty-six dollars clutched in a crumpled ball in my pocket. Are you the manager, I said. God knows I didn't doubt it. Yes, he said. Can I see you, I asked. Alone? I didn't want to say alone again, but without it, the thing seemed self-evident. The manager looked at me in some alarm. He felt that I had an awful secret to reveal. Come in here, he said, and led the way to a private room. He turned the key in the lock. We are safe from interruption in here, he said. Sit down. We both sat down and looked at each other. I found no voice to speak. You are one of Pinkerton's men, I presume, he said. He had gathered from my mysterious manner that I was a detective. I knew what he was thinking, and it made me worse. No, not from the Pinkertons, I said, seeming to imply that I came from a rival agency. To tell the truth, I went on, as if I had been prompted to lie about it. I'm not a detective at all. I have come to open account. I intend to keep all my money in this bank. The manager looked relieved, but still serious. He concluded now that I was a son of Baron Rothschild or a young ghoul. A large account, I suppose, he said. Fairly large, I whispered. I propose to deposit $56 now and $50 a month regularly. The manager got up and opened the door. He called to the accountant. Mr. Montgomery, he said unkindly loud. This gentleman is opening an account. We'll deposit $56. Good morning. I rose. A big iron door stood open at the side of the room. Good morning, I said and stepped into the safe. Come out, said the manager coldly and showed me the other way. I went up to the accountant's wicket and poked the ball of money at him with a quick convulsive movement, as if I were doing a conjuring trick. My face was ghastly pale. Here, I said, to posit it. The tone of the words seemed to mean, let us do this painful thing while the fit is on us. He took the money and gave it to another clerk. He made me write the sum on a slip and signed my name in a book. I no longer knew what I was doing. The bank swam before my eyes. Is it deposited? I asked in a hollow, vibrating voice. It is, said the accountant. Then I want to draw a check. My idea was to draw out six dollars of it for present use. Someone gave me a checkbook through a wicket. Someone else began telling me how to write it out. The people in the bank had the impression that I was an invalid millionaire. I wrote something on the check and thrust it in at the clerk. He looked at it. What? Are you drawing it all out again? He asked in surprise. Then I realized I had written 56 instead of 6. I was too far gone now for reason. I had a feeling that it was impossible to explain the thing. All the clerks had, had stopped. Monday dawned warm and rainless. Aurelio Escobar, a dentist without a degree, and a very early riser opened his office at six. He took some false teeth still mounted in their plaster mold out of the glass case and put on the table a fistful of instruments which he arranged in size order as if they were on display. He wore a collarless striped shirt 
closed at the neck with a golden stud and pants held up by suspenders. He was erect and skinny with a look that rarely corresponded to the situation, the way deaf people have of looking. When he had things arranged on the table, he pulled the drill toward the dental chair and sat down to polish the false teeth. He seemed not to be thinking about what he was doing, but worked steadily pumping the drill with his feet, even when he didn't need it. After eight, he stopped for a while to look at the sky through the window and he saw two pensive buzzards who were drying themselves in the sun on the ridge pole of the house next door. He went on working with the idea that before lunch it would rain again. The shrill voice of his eleven-year-old son interrupted his concentration. Papa, what? The mayor wants to know if you'll pull his tooth. Tell him I'm not here. He was polishing a gold tooth. He held it at arm's length and examined it with his eyes half closed. His son shouted again from the little waiting room. He says you are too because he can hear you. The dentist kept examining the tooth. Only when he had put it on the table with the finished work did he say, so much the better. He operated the drill again. He took several pieces of a bridge out of a cardboard box where he kept the things he still had to do and began to polish the gold. Papa, what? He still hadn't changed his expression. He says if you don't take out his tooth, he'll shoot you. Without hurrying, with an extremely tranquil movement, he stopped pedaling the drill, pushed it away from the chair, and pulled the lower drawer of the table all the way out. There was a revolver. Okay, he said. Tell him to come and shoot me. He rolled the chair over opposite the door, his hand resting on the edge of the drawer. The mayor appeared at the door. He'd shaved the left side of his face, but the other side, swollen in pain, had a five-day-old beard. The dentist saw many nights of desperation in his dull eyes. He closed the drawer with his fingertips and said softly, Sit down. Good morning, said the mayor. Morning, said the dentist. While the instruments were boiling, the mayor leaned his skull on the headrest of the chair and felt better. His breath was icy. It was a poor office, an old wooden chair, the pedal drill, a glass case with ceramic bottles. Opposite the chair was a window with a shoulder-high cloth curtain. When he felt the dentist approach, the mayor braced his heels and opened his mouth. Arulio Escobar turned his head toward the light. After inspecting the infected tooth, he closed the mayor's jaw with a cautious pressure of his fingers. It has to be without anesthesia, he said. Why? Because you have an abscess. The mayor looked him in the eye. All right, he said, and tried to smile. The dentist did not return the smile. He brought the basin of sterilized instruments to the work table and took them out of the water with a pair of cold tweezers, still without hurrying. Then he pushed the spittoon with the tip of his shoe and went to wash his hands in the wash basin. He did all this without looking at the mayor. But the mayor didn't take his eyes off him. It was a lower wisdom tooth. The dentist spread his feet and grasped the tooth with a hot forceps. The mayor seized the arms of the chair, braced his feet with all his strength, and felt an icy void in his kidneys, but didn't make a sound. The dentist moved only his wrist. Without rancor, rather with a bitter tenderness, he said, Now you'll pay for our twenty dead men. The mayor felt the crunch of bone in his jaw, and his eyes Outside, a woman walked along the wet street lamp-lit sidewalk through the sleet and snow. Inside, in the Fine Arts Institute of the sixth floor of the YWCA building, 1020 McGee Street, a merry crowd of soldiers from Camp Funston and Fort Leavenworth Fox trotted and one-stepped with girls from the Fine Arts School. 
while a sober-faced young man pounded out the latest jazz music as he watched the moving figures. In a corner, a private in the signal corps was discussing Whistler with a black-haired girl who heartily agreed with him. The private had been a member of the art colony at Chicago before the war was declared. Three men from Funston were wandering arm-in-arm along the walls, looking at the exhibition of paintings by Kansas City artists. The piano player stopped. The dancers clapped and cheered, and he swung into the long, long trail of winding, and the infantry corporal, dancing with a swift-moving girl in a red dress, bent his head close to hers and provided something about a girl in Chautauqua, Kansas. In the corridor, a group of girls surrounded a tow-headed young artilleryman and applauded his imitation of his pal Bill, challenging the colonel who had forgotten the password. The music stopped again, and the solemn pianist rose from his stool and walked out into the hall for a drink. A crowd of men rushed up to the girl in the red dress to plead for the next dance. Outside, the woman walked along the wet, lamp-lit sidewalk. It was the first dance for soldiers to be given under the auspices of the War Camp Community Service. Forty girls of the art school, chaperoned by Miss Winifred Sexton, secretary of the school, and Miss J.F. Binney, were the hostesses. The idea was formulated by J.P. Robertson of the War Camp Community Service. Announcements were sent to the Commandant at Camp Funston in Fort Leavenworth, inviting all soldiers on leave. Posters made by the girl students were put up at Leavenworth on the interim and trains. The first dance will be followed by others at various clubs and schools throughout the city, according to Mr. Robertson. The pianist took his seat again, and the soldiers made a dash for partners. In the intermission, the 